So let's dive in. Acts chapter 19. Let's go. A riot at Ephesus. I mean, something crazy happened. So look up on the screen. Go to, go to Acts, Acts 19 while you're doing that. Remember our four Ds, discover, develop, deploy, and disrupt. That's really what we're doing. And we're going to actually talk about the disruptive nature of the good news. The disruptive nature of the gospel. Everywhere the gospel went. Now, you remember Paul did his first missionary journey. He did his second missionary journey. He's going through these cities. Second missionary journey, he tra retraced his steps to check on the little church plants and the little outposts that he had set up on the first journey. We're now, as of the end of chapter 18, now into 19, we're now stepping into the third leg or the third missionary journey. So we're now on Paul's journey. So, a couple of things that just want to continue to remind us of. Discover. We want to discover who we are in Christ. That's what we're doing here. We want to develop that. Again, that's what we're doing. We're working out. We're exercising. We're, we're exercising our spiritual muscles. We're growing. And then we want to deploy. That means sending you out back into your world, but you're not the same person you were before. It's what's why when we had our time for the Christmas holidays, we prayed over the congregation. We said, we're commissioning you to go back into your family scenarios, which for some could be very disruptive and even traumatic. But we're sending you back, and you're not the same person you were last year over the Christmas holidays. Because you've grown since last year. You've matured since last year. You have more mission, more, more purpose. You, you have more vision now than you did then. So you're not going back the same as you were last year. And every year, every time, we're going we're gonna to pray over our church family and body that we're commissioning you to be missionaries to your own families. To take Jesus back. That's the deployment piece. That's into your where you live. It's also where you work. It's also where you play, where you live, work, and play. Those three places. So that's the deployment piece. But the disrupt piece, which by the way, Russ came up with. Russ, I'm throwing you under the butts, respectively, back there. Russ actually said that should be the fourth D. Because that is the nature of the gospel, is it not? As we have gone through the book of Acts, starting in Acts chapter 1, we're in now chapter 19, we have seen that every time the gospel is preached, disruption occurs. I'll define disruption for you in a minute, and I have it up there. So our harvest vision, look at the scripture. But you shall receive power, or you will receive power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Question, has the Holy Spirit come upon us? Either yes or no. Yes, Holy Spirit upon us, and you will be my witnesses. What does a witness do? Answer the questions they're being asked. So again, we live a life that's compelling. They ask questions, and we get to just simply answer the question. You know the beauty about sharing your faith when someone's asked a question is there's no effort. You're just telling your story. You're just saying, this is what God did. You don't have to elaborate, embellish, make it exaggerate. You just... This is what happened. I was this, I was blind, and now I see. Amazing grace, right? So that's what we do. We are witnesses. He says, you'll be my witnesses. Now, he, this was Jesus speaking with the disciples right before he was airlifted, right? Taken off the earth, right before what, what's known as the ascension. And he, he says, you're going to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Remember, those are concentric circles, those are geographic areas that he's speaking of. Jerusalem was where they lived, is where they were, where they lived, worked, and played. 
And then Judea was the larger area or region. Samaria, oh boy, that was controversial because Samaria was those dirty Gentiles. He says, you're going to go into Samaria. I'm sure as he was sharing this, and they're all caught up in the moment, oh my gosh, it's Jesus, he's hovering. Oh wow, there's angels everywhere. Wow, there's music. I mean, it could have been amazing what was happening. And then he says Samaria, and it's like a record being skipped across. Like, wait, what? Samaria? Those dirty Gentiles? Those people that live on the other side of the tracks? I don't know if your town had tracks. Mine did. Post-Texas, we had tracks. And there was a difference between the demographic on one side of the tracks and one on the other. So we were that stereotypical West Texas town. And bad things happened on the other side of the tracks. That's Samaria, and that's exactly where he's calling us to go. Amen? Amen. He's calling us to go there and to leak life out of overflow. So Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, where those dirty Gentiles live, and to the end of the earth. He's like, we're going to cover the whole thing. So that's our verse. That's really, I was sharing this when we were talking about it, and my daughter, who's 18, she says, oh, that's my life verse. That's my, my number one verse is Acts 1.8. So we're going to move through that. I'm not going to go over that again. So here we are, the riot at Ephesus. Again, the disruptive gospel. The disruptive nature of the gospel. Acts 19, we'll start in verse 21. And uh, In fact, I'll go ahead and give you this before we even read the verse. Look, the definition of disruption, this is from Webster's, it's a break or interruption in the normal course or continuation of some activity or process. Right? It's a little bit wordy, but think about what that's saying. A break or interruption. When there's a disruption, there's a break. So things are going along, disruption occurs, it's broken. Okay, something's... Something has come apart. There's a disintegration. Integrate means to come together. Disintegration, to disintegrate, means to disintegrate, to come apart. So a break or interruption or disintegration in the normal course or continuation of some activity or process. Life is going along okay, or maybe not so okay. Jesus shows up and there's disruption. Did Jesus disrupt your life? He certainly disrupted mine. I told a little bit of that story with uh, the band story, being, being really a knucklehead teenager who was drunk and all that. I shared that on Sunday. And that, Jesus disrupted my life in the middle of that moment. He showed up in the middle on a yellow dog school bus and, while I was in a drunken stupor and showed up and disrupted. Praise God for His disruptive nature. Amen? Aren't you thankful that He shows up and disrupts our lives? He shows up and He interrupts our lives. Praise God. And He does it in a million different ways. So that's what that is. Synonyms. I love synonyms. Synonyms. It means to break up, to disintegrate, to fracture, to fragment, to disturb. Did you know that by you being a carrier of the nature of Jesus Christ, did you know that when you show up with love, that you're disturbing do you know when, when the world is, is camping out on hate and you show up at, with, with joy? How disruptive is peace? Someone who carries peace, who shows up and you just bring peace to everything. That's disruptive when, when the normal course of your work or family environment is chaos. And then suddenly a peaceful person steps in and brings influence and leaks out and overflows into that environment and peace shows up. Is that not disturbing? See, we tend to think of these in negative terms. It's not a negative term necessarily. 
There's good disruption. Amen? When my grandmother would disrupt me from being bad with a paddle, that was a good disruption. I needed intervention. And she would show up and throw down, and it was good. I needed that. So there's good disruption or disturbance, fragment to break apart, upheaval. Everywhere Jesus showed up, there was the, these things were characteristic. They're not negative. These are positives. But it's funny how we'll tend to interpret words in light of our own experience. Think of these in a positive way. The disruptive nature of the gospel. When you show up full of Jesus, you will be disturbing to the things around you. Isn't that a good thing, Jerry? Light, as in light disrupts darkness. Absolutely. 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 Love disrupts hate. Isn't that beautiful? We come, in a sense, in an opposite spirit of the spirit of the age or the world around us. We come up where there's hate, we show up with love. Where there's despair, we show up with joy. We live up in a down world. Is that not disturbing? Have you ever had somebody just say to you, why are you in such a good mood all the time? If not, you need to check your pulse. If not, we need to talk about that. It may be we need some help there. If you're not living a life that's compelling, that's drawing people, that's wooing people to the cross, wooing people to the resurrection, wooing people to the gospel, the good news of Jesus, then we need to talk about that. There's some maturity that needs to happen, right? That doesn't mean living a Pollyanna life, like, oh, everything's great. But it's like, no, everything will be great. There's a renewing, there's a restoring, there's a re- God's going to recreate, there's a renewal of all things coming. It's going to be good, Igbok. It's going to be okay, because God's in control, and we win. So that motivates us now to say, you know what? Yeah, right now, it may suck to be me. It just may be. It may be a, this may be a bad season, but God. But God, and I've read the end of the book, And the God who sees the end from the beginning, He has ordered my steps, and He's delighting in the details of my life. I just quoted three different verses there. He's got this. It's like I said when I shared the story of the woman caught in adultery when Jesus knelt down. You can fill in the blanks to what He was writing on the ground and maybe even what He whispered to her in the midst of a bunch of guys that were rabid with hate and ready to kill with these stones. I think he looked at her and said, I've got this. It's going to be okay. I've got you. Talk about disruptive. Disruptive, disturbing. That's what we carry. But we don't carry it in a caustic, negative, critical, or rebellious way, or a judgmental way, or a condemning way. We carry it with love. We show up and we disturb the peace. We did, no, no. We disturb, we bring peace, but we disturb the status quo. We disturb the way things are. Shouldn't we? Not because of us, but because of Him in us, if that makes sense. So, I'm going to show you a couple maps. These actually trace out the travels of Paul. I've got my little uh, pointer up here. And you can see it. So you can see where he started originally in Jerusalem, and he made his trip that first time. We've talked about all of this. Right now, this is the area on his, on his third missionary leg or his third missionary journey. We're going to see that he was in this area, Thessalonica. Remember the book of Thessalonians? Thessalonica, that's where they were. And by the way, when he would say the church at, 
Oftentimes, there was more than one congregation in a given community, depending on how large the community was. So, for example, when the Lord looks at Fredericksburg, He says the church at Fredericksburg, He doesn't mean just Oak Hills. He doesn't mean just Holy Ghost Lutheran. He doesn't just mean Bethany down the street. He literally means all of us collectively, He sees the church, the body of Christ. So when Paul would address and say the church at Corinth, the church at Thessalonica, it may or may not have been one gathering or one group of people. Does that make sense? There could have been multiples. So think about it in these terms. So he's, he's a Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth. Remember Corinth? Wasn't that a glorious church? If you've read the Bible, you know I was being very sarcastic just then. That was a train wreck. Those Greeks. I mean, come on. So, uh, so Paul, actually, we're going to see this in a minute. When Paul was at Ephesus, so notice the, the journey. Notice the arrow. Corinth, train wreck of a church. So much so, he had to write two full books about it. And most of the books, 1 and 2 Corinthians, are all corrective in nature. He was correcting theology. He's correcting behaviors. <laughs> it was a train wreck. And so when people, I always joke, when people say, oh, we want to go back to be like the Bible. I'm like, really? Have you read the book of Corinthians? Have you read about Titus and Crete? Crete, there's Crete right there. They were called Cretans because they were barbaric. And Paul told Titus, he said, you're going to stay there and you're going to set in order the things that remain because it was a train wreck. So we have to realize Paul was dealing with real problems in real time. Oftentimes we read the Bible with this very romantic idea because we're remembering the flannel graph that we saw in Sunday school or vacation Bible school. But these are real people, real problems, real situations, real emotions, and real fallible. They, they were just like us, right? They were jars of clay, okay? Just like us. And so... So it's fascinating to me. So now we're moving all the way through here. Got Berea, Athens, Corinth. And then over here, Ephesus. Remember the book of Ephesians. Ephesus, a lot of things happened at Ephesus. The passage we're going to read right now was all about Ephesus. And uh, Paul spent three years in Ephesus. Large, metropolitan. In fact, I always liken it to Seattle or Austin. It's very progressive. And it was kind of like everything goes. I mean, it was like you had every religion represented. You had philosophies. You had all these different things going on. Ephesus was that city. Paul spent three years there. And because of his three years in Ephesus, all of Asia heard the gospel. That's huge. Now think about the influence. If you think in concentric circles as they go out, broader and broader, all of Asia heard the gospel because of Paul's three years and his ministry in Ephesus. But it didn't come without a high price. And we're going to see what happened here in a minute when Paul went from preaching to meddling. Okay? You ever heard a preacher say, oh, I've just stepped on something. Oh, I... I'm meddling now. You know, it's okay when you're talking about at 30,000 foot level, but then when you get personal, all of a sudden it, whoa, wait, you're, you're impacting me. What you just said means something in me may not be exactly right or may have to change. Now you're meddling, right? So, so we're going to see how Paul began to meddle. Now, when he was at Ephesus, it was actually when he was there during that three years and towards the end of it, is actually when he wrote the letter back to Corinth that we see as 1 Corinthians. 
And it was that corrective letter because he kept getting word over here across the, across the little way here. He kept getting word that, hey, things are a train wreck. Eventually, he had to go back up, show up. He had to actually show up and go and to take care of things and, and talk about church discipline and how to handle people and how to, how to even treat people who said they were believers but were acting like they were not, and you had to treat them as unbelievers. I mean, he had to get really, really serious about all this. So a lot of things about church discipline, correction, a lot of things come out of the book of 1 and 2 Corinthians because of what he was having to deal with there. But he was actually stationed here building tents, plying his trade, and teaching in the temple regularly and preaching Jesus Christ. So all that happened in Ephesus. That's why the book of Ephesians is so rich. The letters he wrote, the letter he wrote back to Ephesus is so rich with theology and so rich with identity because he spent three years pouring his life there and saw massive, massive moves of God. So I wanted to give you some backdrop, some framework, and then we'll read straight through the Scripture. That's just a different map. And uh, so here it is, Paul's third journey. So verse 21, if you have your Bibles, you can read along, or you can read with me. I've got the ESV, that's the English Standard Version, which I tend to, to like the most these days. Verse 21, now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia. Now I'll put up here on the screen so you can see it. Macedonia included this area, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. We just saw that on the map. And Achaia, which is where the church in Corinth, that's that area. So these areas pass through these areas and go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. This is one of the first times Paul begins to sort of evidence or show forth his strategy for reaching the known world. He spent three years in Ephesus and realized, I just impacted all of Asia. God used this strategically. So he went to a strategic city, and Paul tended to favor large cities. He spent more time in larger population areas because his strategy was to reach as many people as possible. So he'd go to larger areas, preach the gospel, more impact, and then the outlying areas would get impacted as well. I'm not going to go back to our map. I think you all understand that. So he says, after I've been there, I must see Rome. He's like, Rome was the center of the universe at that time on the world scene. And he said, if we can impact Rome, the gospel will go to the whole world. He got it. He understood. Now, so his, his mentality was, or his vision was, I need to impact the impactors and influence the influencers. Does that make sense? So when I was in Abilene, and Nat and I were there, we were there for 10 years, I had that same heart. I thought, who's the most influential person that I know in Abilene, Texas? It was Mayor Grady Barr. I had no idea if Mayor Grady Barr was a Christian or not. So I, I got an appointment with Mayor Barr. I show up at his office down at City Hall, and his secretary is like a guard dog. She's like, what is this preacher wanting to see the mayor about? Because apparently, when preachers showed up at the mayor's office, it typically was not a good meeting. <laughs> apparently, it was negative in nature. I can't even imagine that, can y'all? Preachers showing up with something negative to say? Surely not. And so, I showed up, and I assured the lady, I said, hey, I'm here because I just want to be a blessing to, to the mayor, and I just want to encourage him. She's like, you know, like, <laughs> it's like that old dog looking at the Victrola. You remember that, you know? The, 
you know, and she said, okay, she was very guarded. So I go into his office, I introduce myself, I say, hey, I'm kind of new to Abilene, I'm pastoring at, at that time, it was called Cross, Crossroads Community Church, before we changed the name, I said, uh, I, said I, I just want to know, how can I be a blessing to you? And he's like, do what? I said, well, how can I pray for you? How can I, what's going on in the city that I can take back to our church so that we can pray for our city? So what are some initiatives that you're working on or projects that you can tell me about, you feel safe telling me about, and I'll take that back to our church and we will pray intentionally and strategically. We'll intercede over those things. I mean, the look on his face was like, who are you? What planet did you come from? And uh, so he sits there for a minute, and he goes, okay, turns around, he stands up, he's got a wall of shelves behind him, he pulls off this big roll of like blueprint looking things, and he drops them on his desk, and he rolls them out, and he starts to show me a 10-year plan that was up for a vote with the city council that they had hired some high-profile consultant to come in and do a 10-year plan, strategic plan for the city. And it had all these different components. He started rolling out this whole thing and showing me all the elements. I'm taking notes. I'm writing stuff down. And I gave him a scripture. I said, let me give you a scripture that I think will encourage you. I said, Proverbs 11, 11 says, By the blessing of the upright, a city prospers. But by the, the tongue of the wicked, it's torn apart. And then I explained what it is. I said, I said we've got to start speaking life over our city. This was Abilene. And, and I, when I got there, people were speaking negative over it. Even the pastors in the community, when I went to the, to the Minister Alliance meeting and stuff, they were talking death over the city. I actually, young buck that I was, spoke up and said, we need to start speaking life over our city instead of death. All I hear is death in here. Kind of shut the room down for a minute. But it's like, come on, if we're the pastors and the ministers called to this city, we need to bring life. We need to bring hope. We need to speak positive. We need to... We need to be a blessing. It was based on that scripture. God showed me that scripture. He wrote that scripture down. And he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that. And he goes, sometimes I pray. As he was really excited to tell me that. Sometimes I pray. And uh, it was so sweet. It was so sweet. He and I became dear, dear friends over time. And I went to his office once a month. And I sat with him. And we prayed over the city. And then eventually... Because of me continuing to come in, and I'd say, oh, I saw something. I saw that they cleared the, the gutters out for the flood abatement down at, at the creek behind the coffee shop. And he's like, yeah, that's part of our flood initiative. I said, I saw that. Isn't that awesome? And I started calling out the good things of our city. And every time I went to the mall, every time I went out to eat, every time I went to church, every time I went to a ministerial meeting, I heard death, 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 people knocking their city. And I said, we're going to change that. We're going to start a blessing campaign. So finally, he was so excited to tell me. He said, I did something. I said, what did you do, Mayor Grady Barr? He's an older guy. He said, he said, I've started a What's Right with Abilene campaign. And I started seeing, remember this, Annette? We started seeing billboards. Somehow they started gathering statistics about positive things that were happening in our community, particularly with Dias Air Force Base and some neat things that were happening at the time that were really good, but no one was talking about the good stuff. Isn't it weird how our human nature gravitates towards the negative? You ever notice that? 
Just read Facebook for five minutes. Read, we're always gravitating toward the negative. Be in an office context, or a church for that matter, and you're going to hear the junk. You're going to hear the negative. You're going to hear the complaints. And we need to start saying, what's right? What's good? What's positive? What's hopeful? What's life-giving? Would we not stand out in this world if we just did a little bit more of that? And so he started this What's Right with Abilene campaign. Billboards started going up all over the city. We, our church was right off Treadway Avenue, and, and, and we were in the hood. We were in the really rough part of town. And, uh, but we saw these billboards go up on Treadway. What's right? Did you know? And he'd say, what's right with Abilene? Did you know? And there'd be some statistic of that that's really outstanding about our community. And people begin to actually celebrate the good things. Of course, I got up in church and go, in our city, awesome. You get blank stares, you know. I mean, I'm like, look, we're not Los Angeles. We're Texas. We're, this is Abilene. Come on. Most negative people I ever met were people in Southern California who wanted out of Southern California so bad that they hated where they lived. And I was always like, hey, it's not that bad. Yeah. It literally means, and I read on this actually, I did some deep diving on this. It means he consulted with the Holy Spirit. Remember the Macedonian call when he was arrested from going one place? He wanted to go up one place and the Holy Spirit said, stop. He's like, wait a minute, I was going to go preach the gospel in Northern Asia. And the Holy Spirit stopped it. Apparently he learned something. So apparently he consulted, and that's what that literally means, is that he actually consulted with the Holy Spirit. And uh, great, some really neat commentators are writing some really interesting stuff about that, and I'm glad you pulled that out. I kind of blew through that. But he literally, it was like he learned a lesson from his first encounter where the Holy Spirit had to arrest him. Now the word arrest, we, we would translate it as rebuke. Rebuke simply means not to get in somebody's face, it means to stop. It means you're under arrest, stop. Well, I mean, there's, there's the word pneuma, pneumatos, there's the word parakletos or paraclete, but it will be capitalized to indicate that it's, it's the person of the Holy Spirit. So now you'll sometimes see, like if you're reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, talking about praying in the Spirit, or talking about in 1 Corinthians 1, it talks about the human spirit, it will not be capitalized. So it's good to note that and notice the difference. Yeah. In various translations, they have various criteria for the way to do. It really bothered me when the NIV went away from capitalized personal pronoun, him, he. Uh, I'm like, why do we, you know, that bothered me because I don't know, maybe I'm a little old school. But I, so I tend to enjoy the New King James reading because it, it keeps all of those personal pronouns capitalized. To me, that's honor, it's respect. But the ESV doesn't, but the ESV is such a good translation, I just live with it. So, but that's a good, good thing to note. Good, good point. A good point, uh, Steve, on that in regard to that. He was consulting. He actually did. So he learned, and, and you see Paul's growth as well. Isn't that beautiful? So let's keep moving along. Uh, having sent in, Here's what happens. After I've been there, I must also go see Rome. His strategy, back to my little story about Grady Barr. I knew that if I could influence the mayor 
of our city, it would influence our city. Does that make sense? A lot of evangelism, we, go, we take a, the opposite approach where we go, we're just going to win people to Jesus and hope it somehow infiltrates the city. What if, you, what if you win the most influential person in a given arena? Is that not as good a strategy, maybe even better? In politics, and, and when I took poli sci back at Texas Tech a long time ago, they talked about the trickle-down effect of economics that it would go from the top and it would trickle down. But I took that same approach regarding the gospel. If I could influence Mayor Grady Barr, who prayed every once in a while, maybe if I could influence him with the, the, the principles of the kingdom, even if he didn't know it, would he not still be doing kingdom work by speaking life over the city instead of speaking death? And that's exactly what happened and it was so impactful that I eventually invited him to come preach at my church. And he did. And he taught a wonderful message, speech, whatever. It's kind of a speech more. But it was beautiful because he stood up in our pulpit in humility in our church and talked about grit, faith, and determination. And it was wonderful. And it was good for him, too. And that's the partnership that we developed what was my point? Same point as Paul. He's going to go to the epicenter of the world and preach the gospel. I went to the leader of our particular community and did the same. That makes sense. It's strategic thinking, strategic planning. And let me tell you something. Look at me, everybody, just for a minute. God has great plans for Fredericksburg and the surrounding communities. And it will be when we begin to get strategic and begin to influence influencers and impact the impactors. Do you agree with that? You just fasten your seatbelts. It's coming. So I'm excited about it. So having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy, which we're very familiar with Timothy, and Erastus, another one of his, his disciples, so to speak, that traveled with him, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. We know he was there for three years. So moving right along. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Remember, it was referred to the way in another passage not too long ago. And all it means is it's a reference to Christianity. That's it. So don't confuse that with a cult called the way, uh, which came out a number of years ago, a few decades back here in America. And they called and went around saying, we're the way, the way, the way. For a man named Demetrius. Now this, look what he, he's a tradesman here. He's a silversmith. And look what he did who made silver shrines of Artemis. Artemis was one of the gods that they worshipped. But here's the deal. Not only was it a god they worshipped, Artemis was a big old economic boon for the community. It was all about the money, not the religion, not the spirit. So Artemis was a money-making deal because they would offer sacrifices. They would buy things. So look what he did. He made silver shrines. Annette and I had the privilege of going to Paris, and all over Paris you could buy these little Eiffel Tower things everywhere. They were everywhere. Little ivory tower, I mean, uh, or a little, little thing of, uh, of the Eiffel Tower, this big, this big. You'd get all kinds. Some of them had lights in them, and they were everywhere. And it's the same thing. They had these little shrines of Artemis, and this silversmith who made them, it was whole trade, his whole business, his whole commerce was around these shrines. So look what happens. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. Remember, it's big money 
in this big, bustling city brought no little business to the craftsmen. He said, it was their money. That was their bread and butter. Here's the deal. People will let you preach Jesus, but the moment it starts to interfere with their life, look out. Watch out. You've moved on from preaching. Now you're stepping in it. You're meddling. Look what happens. Verse 25. These he gathered together. This is Demetrius. He's gathering together with the workmen in similar trades. So he's pulling people together going, we got a problem here. This Paul guy is preaching against idols. Guess what? Artemis is an idol. He's preaching against our bread and butter. He's going to take money out of our kids' mouths. It's like a union tradesman coming in and saying, all right, we're here showing up, and let me tell you what's going to happen. So these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And can you imagine him just saying, this, he's taking money out of your children. He's taking food out of your kids' mouths. Can you imagine that? Can you hear the manipulation in that? Look what happens. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people. There's an indication from a non-Christian saying of the impact of Paul's ministry. Turned away a great many people saying that gods made with hands are not gods. Is he not speaking the truth? He's saying what Paul's saying. He's saying, this is what Paul's saying. Verse 27, And there is danger not only in that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. Now he's getting inflammatory. He's giving a speech. Can you hear his... You read words on a page, you don't always catch the, the emotion of it, but he's stirring them up. He's inciting the crowd. He's saying, can you believe what this guy's doing? He's even coming against the great God, Artemis. Our, our beloved Artemis. Look what he says. And there's danger, not only this, that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence. And they're all aghast. <gasps> no. Can you believe that? He's inflaming. He is inciting this thing. Look what happens. Maybe deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. He is whooping it up now. I mean, he's, he is going for it. I mean, he's crescendo right here. The whole world worships Artemis. Wrong. But he's making this big speech, and he's very convincing. He's got them whipped up. He's got them worked up. He's got them upset. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged. Now picture the scene. Okay? Get off the flannel graph and get into reality. These are people who now are hearing this fearful prediction. This is like Dave Ramsey saying, you can't go blow money on a credit card anymore. You've got to save money. You're like, whoa, no. I mean, this is like messing with your stuff. Right? And they're, they're now enraged. And the crowd, they're upset. All these tradesmen, all these workmen crying out. And look what they cry out together. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I mean, they're like whipped up. So the city was filled with confusion. You see, how many of y'all know gossip spreads like fire? 
You can't get good news three phone calls down the line, but I'm telling you, you tell a secret, you tell gossip, you print something on Facebook that's a lie, that you haven't gone on Snopes and checked it out, and I mean, people take it and run with it. I mean, I've busted so many myths on social media by going, have you actually checked this out? This is a lie. This is an urban myth. This is a legend. It's not even true. Especially when Christians do it about things. They make us all look bad sometimes. So the city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater. Now this theater was a massive event center. This was no small thing. This was a large stadium that held thousands of people. And they filled this place up. They had the city so worked up that Paul, who had been working in peace, converting people right and left. People are getting born again. The church there is beginning to grow, and they whip up the crowd. Does this not sound like what happened to Jesus? The same people that were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, are the same people that were in the crowd saying, crucify Him, crucify Him. Is that not human nature? That's what's happening here. So... 25,000. It's mad. Ephesus, epicenter of that world of Asia. And think about it being filled with people from the city. I mean, and a lot of them, one commentator says, most of them that showed up and that whipped up in a frenzy didn't even know why they were there. It was just an event. Something's happening. In fact, maybe somebody's going to get impaled. Maybe somebody's going to get brutally killed and murdered. Maybe we get to, I mean, they're, they're wanting to see blood and gore. This is why you go to car races, right? I mean, maybe there'll be a crash. Maybe there'll be this tremendous... People show up for the craziest reasons. Look what happens. They rush together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus. One commentator said, those guys happened to be out, and they were recognized, and they just drugged them in too. Oh, they were with Paul and them. I mean, they're, they're in a frenzy, and they're grabbing anybody who was a part of the way. And that's what happens. So poor Gaius, they didn't know what was going on. They're like, hey, why is everybody running? And somebody says, hey, they're with them. And they actually dragged them into, they're bringing them all in. Gaius, Macedonians who were with Paul's companions in, traffic, in, in travel. So they're just pulling everybody in who's associated with Paul. All of a sudden, it's getting scary. Verse 30, but when Paul wished... But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples wouldn't let him. Why? Because they knew he'd get killed. They're going to make a, they're going to make a spectacle out of him. So they said, don't do it. So here's what happens. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. These were people that were actually... Not Christians per se, but they were sympathetic to the way and they had begun to be converted. So it's a whole other system, yet Paul had already been making inroads into them and they were friends, said, don't go. Don't go in there, you're dead. If you go in there, you're dead. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. That means an uproar, upheaval. And most of them did not know why they'd even come together. They're just mad. Have you ever been around a crowd that just got mad? It's called a mob mentality. People get whipped up in a frenzy and they don't even know why. I mean, it can get crazy. If you've ever been in one of those scenes, have you ever been in a scene like that where the crowd just went nuts and nobody knew why? I was. In high school, going to tell on myself, Black Sabbath concert, Lubbock, Texas. 
and a fight broke out on the floor, and before long, knives were coming out, and I saw guys getting stabbed and cut and sliced, and I had never seen anything like that before. It was insane, and it just went out of control. I was not a follower of Jesus, just so you know. There was a BC, but I'm telling you, I saw a crowd go into, into animal mode. It went primal. I'd never seen anything like that before. It's the spirit of that. It's driven, and it's whipped up. So now look what happens. They didn't even know. Most of them didn't know why they're there, but they're all in. They're excited, right? Look what happens. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis! of the Ephesians. So you've got this clash of cultures going on. And these Ephesians are defending their Artemis. And Alexander tries to step in and quiet the crowd, and they'll have none of it. When they recognize he was a Jew, for two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Look what happens. We'll land the plane. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus. You've got thousands of people here. He's standing down in the arena yelling out, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? It's purported this was probably a meteor event that happened during their time that became a part of the legend of Artemis. Okay, So he's referring to this event, this astrological event, he says this, of the sacred stone that fell from the sky, saying, he's kind of declaring, this is who we are. Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. He's trying to appeal to them and calm the crowd. He's like, hey, if we're right, there's nothing to be worked up about. He's trying to calm them down because it's about to be a bloodbath. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Saying, look, these guys haven't done anything wrong. They're not out saying Artemis is a false god. They've been talking about idols. But apparently, Paul, wise and strategic, knew when to say what. And he picked his battles well. We could learn from that. Amen? Pick your battles. So apparently, Paul had been smart in the way he was conveying the gospel. And the town clerk, basically the mayor, says that they're neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our God. He's trying to calm them down. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-counsels. Let them bring charges. He says, we have a process for this. Follow the process. We have courts. So, can you hear the reasoning in this? When you read through the Bible, get into, dig into the history a little bit. Get, dig into the, remember, context is king. Sometimes we read things that may be a little bit confusing like this, and we blow through it, and we check our box on you version saying, I read, I read my chapter for the day. But did we really get anything? You have to understand, there's a whole lot of dynamics, human dynamics going on here, and spiritual dynamics. So he says this, they've, they've done nothing wrong. Actually, we need to, we need to calm down. Because if, if we're right, and, and Artemis, then we have nothing to worry about. He says, Follow the process. Here's the biggest fear. Commentators are really on point, and they're all in agreement. 
The fear was in inciting a riot in Ephesus, they could actually bring the hammer of Rome down on Ephesus. Because that was the fear. The political environment was so volatile, and Rome had such a heavy hand on all of this area, including Jerusalem, we saw that, that the fear was, and this town clerk was smart because he was, he was in constant communication and relationship with the Roman leaders and government, he knew that if, if this turned into a bloodbath, Rome was going to step in and crush the city. Because that was Rome's M.O. Steve? Wide open. Yep. Yep. If you'll remember in Jesus' time, they started crucifying Christians, all of those who were followers of the way. They started crucifying them by the hundreds. Just going through and randomly crucifying people, killing them right and left. Why? They were dropping the hammer down on Jerusalem to quell this revolt of these Christians, of these followers of Jesus. This were, So you can see why they were going to protect that. This is big, big commerce. Right, same, same, yes. Artemis, Diana is the same. All right, last, last section. Again, town clerk. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. He's given them the product, do it right. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today. There it is. There's the fear. We're about to get the Roman government's attention, and we don't want to do this. He says this, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. He says, we're about to bring the hammer down on us. We've got to stop it. It's kind of like when you were kids and you were in the back bedroom while all the family's in the front, and you're getting in a fight, and somebody says, shut up, dad's going to hear. And when dad comes in here, he's going to come swinging with the belt. You know what I'm saying? Or is I, my family the only one that did that? Shut up. Shut up. Don't, get, don't wake up dad. I mean, it was that. It was that. It was that fear of you're about to bring authority in because of, of our behavior. Now look at verse 41. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly, and it came to nothing. But I'm telling you, they were this close to a major political disruption. Major. Yet, the beauty of the whole thing is that for three years, Paul ministered there, even in the middle of all this, and all of Asia heard the gospel. Listen, just by you showing up full of Jesus, you will be disruptive in nature. I don't know if you ever figured this out, but when I became a new Christian, I quickly realized not everybody was excited about my newfound faith as I was. <laughs> Shocker. <laughs> I mean, it changed my whole life. My whole world changed. Everything. My trajectory, my family tree, 
Everything changed when I stepped over the line at 19 to go in with Jesus. But not all my friends were excited about it. And even people I thought would be excited about really weren't. So I was kind of on my own there for a while. So just know, you're going to be disruptive just by showing up. But that's part of, that's part of the call. And that's okay. Amen? Let's all stand together. Guys, have been great, been patient. I hope you're learning something. I hope it helps by getting into some of the context, giving framework for what's going on. So the next time you read this, or as we continue through this, you'll have a broader understanding, and you'll, it'll start to make the Bible make sense. Context is king. Remember that.